Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, How to Read for Lifelong Learning, Part 3. Ken, with three parts, it seems like uh, this could go on for a lifetime. (laughs) I'm sure you'd be happy about that. I I think I just enjoy it. You know, this is, uh, I never get tired of talking about these topics, but I'm, I, uh, I'll tell you, one of the best compliments that I receive from people is that they might read my book and then decide, hey, I'm going to tackle, you know, the Confessions by Augustine or the Ponces by Pascal. That really encourages me. So uh, this is just a lot of fun. And I, I thought as the third part of our discussion of reading, we might talk about some of the some of the classic books that are out there. I'm going to give some descriptions of them. And um, hopefully uh, this will challenge you to to spend more, take more money out of your debit card and make <laughs> Amazon richer and richer. So, uh, well, it gets a little scary here. And Dave, I appreciated your comment before we recorded. Maybe you can utter it again about uh, some of these books on the list. Yeah, well, let's get into the books. I, I, I kind of said uh, that Ken picked some pretty heavy duty books in this list. Uh, an example is, of course, Aquinas's book, Summa. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's only two million words long. I couldn't I couldn't even get very far into the summary of Summa, <laughs> <laughs> let alone Summa itself. But uh, do you think, hey, I got a question. Do you think we're going to have books and reading in heaven? Well, I, I, I think that's uh, absolutely. <laughs> sure i i think i think we're going to see some libraries that will just make you uh make you envy you won't envy but it'll make you want to envy yeah you know when we talk about thomas aquinas i often think of uh the line well those that was a day when men were men you know Uh, well what i'd like to do we in our previous shows we talked about the importance of reading we talked about uh you know reading Actively reading worldviewishly, and that third point, you know, reading quality books. Um, and you know, you could be intimidated. Uh, I have not read all the classics that I want to read, but the last few years I've been reading more of them, and I notice it did slow my reading down, but I'm getting more of it. And I also think that there are books you have to read and reread. Uh, Mere Christianity was the first Christian book I ever read, and I've read it and reread it multiple times. Um, in fact, I, I I usually get back to it once a year. I just think it's such a such a pivotal book. Well, let me let me uh, introduce a few books. We can talk about them. Um, you know, maybe you want in your church or in your interaction with your friends. Maybe you want to start a, a great books reading club. Um, you know, sometimes sometimes reading with other people and then meeting to talk about some of these ideas can you can get so much more out of it. Um, you know, I'm working on a book with my colleague Mark Perez, and uh, it, the appendix talks a little bit about the importance of learning and reading. 
And uh, I recommend that churches uh, take on this. Um, you know, Protestant churches, conservative Protestant churches are usually very good about Bible study, and um, and that's excellent. Um, but reading some of the classics can be helpful. Now, the first book I want to talk a little bit about is The Republic by Plato. Uh, so, you know, Plato, you're, you're going back 25, 2,400 years. Plato uh, is arguably the greatest philosopher who ever lived. He, he's in competition with his teacher, Socrates, or his student, Aristotle. Maybe a few centuries later, uh, Christian philosophers like Augustine and Aquinas will come along and compete with uh Plato for being the great philosopher. But what I what I find really interesting about Plato and Aristotle is though they lived about 2,400 years ago, the things they talk about are still relevant today. Uh, you know, the technology, the world has changed radically from when they lived, but their ideas are, are still very powerful. And I think a, a interesting point is that I think Plato and Aristotle, and of course, some people say, well, why are you reading those pagans? You know, they were pagan philosophers. Well, I actually think Plato and Aristotle serve as worldview allies today. They, Plato and Aristotle thought truth really existed. It was objective. And they, they believed that there were moral principles that could be identified as being uh, objective. So when you're reading Plato and Aristotle, they're going to agree with a lot of what you think as a Christian, uh, as a conservative, theologically uh, oriented Christian. Well, um, the other thing I would say about Plato, and Dave, I'm going to address this to your point. Um, I agree with C.S. Lewis. I think that Plato is such a good writer that you you might you might find it a little difficult to get through the Republic, but I think a lot of times reading Plato, and particularly Plato has a lot of what he calls Socratic dialogues. Those were the first philosophy books I read, where, where Socrates is having, a, you know, he's engaged in the Socratic method. He's interrogating people, and they're going through a, a dialogue and, and a discussion. Um, I think Plato writes so well, and uh, particularly when he uses Socrates as kind of his mouthpiece, um, I agree with Lewis. You, you could get more out of reading Plato than you would get out of reading uh, books on Platonism, which are, you know, sometimes very difficult to get through. Well, this is what I say about the, the Republic. This book stands as a classic of Western civilization in the fields of philosophy and political theory. Uh, while the great philosopher Plato wrote this work 2,400 years ago, it remains amazingly relevant to contemporary society in asking questions about the nature of justice. In the Republic, Plato raises deep philosophical questions concerning goodness, reality, knowledge, and education. Plato's masterwork remains one of the most widely read philosophical books in the world. This book is arguably the greatest philosophical work ever written, and it has impacted the world greatly. Well, um, 
There was a philosopher named Whitehead, who was also a scientist, by the way, Dave. Mm-hmm. And he, he said that the history of philosophy is mere footnotes to Plato. And I I think this is this is the book to read by Plato. Although, again, some of the Socratic dialogues are very helpful. But, you know, Plato was interested in politics. He was interested in a lot of things. And uh, this is a classic. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, I I agree with Peter Kraft. I think, uh, you know, the three there in Athens, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, they have a lot to say. And uh, they, you know, they, they weren't Christian. I, I, I don't think that any of them had direct interaction with the Hebrew scriptures, uh, although there are people who speculate about that. Uh, I think Plato was a theist. Uh, the, when he talks about the form of the good, it it sounds a heck of a lot like uh, the God that Augustine and Aquinas uh, talk about. But it's it's a paperback. It's fairly inexpensive, and it will challenge you. Remember, um, you know, Athens had all kinds of challenges politically, and so Plato is is raising questions about, hey. You know, where are we going politically? Where are we going in in these particular areas? So that that's a good book to read. Now, let me ask a question. You know, of course, when you look up, you can find multiple different versions of this. These are obviously translations. What from from Greek, classical Greek, to that's right, English. Yeah. Um, probably some would be written in a more modern English than uh, maybe some of the earlier translations. So any that you would recommend? Um, You know, I like the Penguin Classics uh, on some of these books. Uh, I think that, I think uh, they're they're paperbacks, so they're cheaper uh, to purchase, but I I think they're often uh, translated uh, to be read. And so, you you want to look at? I would recommend you take a look at the Penguin Classic Edition mm. for Plato. Now let me introduce Aristotle to you. Aristotle was the student of Plato, so you have this interesting element that Plato saw himself as a student of Socrates, and then Aristotle comes along, and he's a student of Plato, and of course the first European university. Um, uh, was set up by Plato, um, and Aristotle was a student, studied there for more than more than twenty years uh, at at what Plato called the academy, and and of course that's what we say today about the university, right? They're going to the academy. Well, um, Plato and Aristotle agree on a lot of things, but Aristotle was also a critic of Plato, and. Uh, he is undoubtedly one of the the great thinkers of Western civilization. Um, both the medieval uh, medieval Islam and medieval Christianity picked up Aristotle, and so when you think of uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, in the Summa Theologica or the Summa Theologiae, as it's pronounced. Um, or the Summa Contra Gentilis, you see kind of a 
a a Greek Christian synthesis. Now, I think if you're going to pick up a book by Aristotle, I would I would recommend his Nicomachean Ethics. And this is what I write, just a brief sentence. Aristotle's works one of the greatest treatments of moral theory in the history of Western philosophy. In contrast with his teacher Plato, who grounded virtue in the transcendent world of forms, Aristotle's ethics tend to be more this-worldly and pragmatic. Aristotle's work is divided into 10 books. The titles such as The Object of Life, Justice, The Kinds, kinds of Friendships, Pleasure in the Life of Happiness, this work remains influential more than two millennia, two millenniums after it was written. So Aristotle's an interesting figure. He was, you know, the first great logician. He was the first one to kind of uh, systematize the laws of logic and things of that nature. But Aristotle was also very much interested in how do I live a good life? How do I, how do I find fulfillment and satisfaction? Uh, he called it eudaimonia. What? How is it that it, human beings will find contentment? And uh, again, whether you agree or disagree with the particulars, uh, and you know, you have to realize these are men of their times. I mean, Aristotle uh, actually defended slavery. He said, "Well, of course, the Greeks are superior to the non-Greeks." Uh, you know, so you're you're going to get their prejudices and their biases, but you will also get uh, the insights of one of the brightest people. And by the way, Dave, Aristotle was very big on uh, biology. Um, he taught Alexander the Great wherever Alexander would conquer. Um, Alexander would send back exotic animals to Aristotle so that he could take a look at them and things of that nature. So in many respects, Aristotle does a lot of good for science. Plato's looking at the world of forms. This world is kind of like a Xerox copy, but Aristotle says, no, this, this is the real world. And so that book on Nicomachean ethics, I think is a good place to, to start your reading of Aristotle. And again, you can, uh, I'm going to recommend you go to uh, the Penguin class again pretty cheap and i've i've enjoyed reading them any comments about those two greek thinkers and, and again um the greeks uh they didn't have a view a view of sin um so there there are going to be areas in which you're going to see differences but Plato and Aristotle believed in objective truth, and they believed that truth was discoverable. So there's a lot of good in them. Um, Adler wrote a book that I've read called Aristotle for, for Everybody. Yeah. And that sort of gives you a taste without necessarily getting into the, the really gutsy stuff. Yeah. And... I enjoy that's that. okay. I'm, I'm and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, Peter Kraft has written kind of an introduction to the confessions. Um, he wrote a, an introduction to the Ponces, and if that helps, uh, I think that's really good. Tom Morris, Christian philosopher, wrote a book entitled "If Aristotle Ran General Motors." Hmm. 
kind of looking at applying philosophy to the to to the world of business and it very very engaging tom morris okay well let's shift into some christian books um right at the top here is on the incarnation by saint athanasius and of course athanasius may have been one of the most important christian theologians apologists in history uh interestingly enough i think athanasius is probably the the most respected more than more than augustine more than thomas uh and the reason for that is uh athanasius is a saint not only in the eastern orthodox tradition and athanasius of course would have come out of alexandria kind of out of egypt so he was an eastern father He's a saint in the Orthodox tradition. He's a saint in the Roman Catholic tradition. In fact, the parish I was baptized at in Long Beach, California, was St. Athanasius Parish. On the door of the church, it says Athanasius Contra Mundum, Athanasius Against the World. Well, um, but I would add to that, the reason why I think Athanasius has more receives more respect than Augustine and Aquinas is that pro he's usually Protestant's favorite church father. Why? Because he defended the deity of Christ. He fought Arianism to a draw. And um, so he's a heroic figure. Um, let me read a little bit about this book. It's called On the Incarnation. Well, remember, in the Eastern Church, they put a real emphasis upon the incarnation. Uh, there's a strong sense that, uh, you know, uh, Athanasius has the the quote that 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 Lewis kind of uh, utilizes. Lewis says, "You know, the Son of God became a man so that men could become sons of God." Well, this idea of the incarnation taking on the the nature of God, I say Athanasius's book provides an explanation and defense of the historic Christian doctrine of the incarnation in the context of heretical attacks against it. I don't know what was a worse heresy uh, between Arianism and Gnosticism. They were both very, very difficult. In fact, I'm writing a blog article right now about Eastern church fathers that really battled uh, to defend the Trinity. They're called the Cappadocian fathers. But, uh, Athanasius defends the incarnation in light of Arianism. Arianism said, look, um, the son is not equal to the father. The father created the son. The son is a creature. And uh, there were many kind of Arian views, semi-Arianism, um, etc. Then, of course, there's modern day groups that are Arian. Jehovah's Witnesses, Christadelphians, uh, many Unitarians kind of adopt the type of uh, Arianism. I go on to say this, Athanasius affirms that the essence of Christianity is found in the historic truth claim of Jesus Christ being God in human flesh, a single person with both a divine and human nature. However, during Athanasius's lifetime, uh, the incarnation would be directly challenged by the influential Arian heresy that denied Christ's true deity. Athanasius is one of historic Christianity's greatest theologians and apologists. 
And this book, according to C.S. Lewis, is a masterpiece. The, the, the version I recommend you get is the version where C.S. Lewis writes the introduction. Mm. And uh, one of the things Lewis says about that book is he said, it didn't take a lot of reading of the On the Incarnation for me to discover I was dealing with a masterful theologian. So that that's a that's a great book to to read. I like to I like to read it during the Advent season, the Christmas season, where we're thinking about Jesus coming into human flesh. And again, there may be no theologian in the history of the church that's more celebrated. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, uh, Athanasius is right at the top of the list there. Okay, well, uh, there's a couple books by St. Augustine. Um, you know, what's interesting is, uh, I think that it's probably correct to say that no individual has had more influence on the development of Christianity um, uh, than Augustine. The, the only person would be the Apostle Paul. So he has a huge influence, but it's important to realize that Augustine isn't held in high esteem in the Eastern Church. The Orthodox, they tend to view Augustine as being pessimistic about human nature. They're, they're not enamored by his views of predestination. And uh, so in Western Christendom, when it comes to the Catholic and Protestant churches, I would say Augustine is probably the most influential uh, figure. Well, uh, let me say something about the Confessions. This is St. Augustine's most famous book and one of the most important Christian books in history. Augustine's autobiography actually created the genre of the biographical writings in Western civilization. That is the Romans and the Greeks. They wrote biographies, but they never wrote a book about one's spiritual journey. So it, it created a whole different uh, genre. Thus, this book is both a Christian and literary classic and appears in all the great books, reading programs. You go over to Biola or you go up to St. Thomas, uh, Thomas Aquinas College or go back east to some of the great books program. You're definitely going to read the Confessions. The title Confessions is understood in a triple sense, Confession of Sin. And Augustine was a great sinner. Uh, confession of a newfound faith. He was a Catholic and then gave up his faith, got involved in a cult called the Manichaean cult. Then he adopted kind of philosophical skepticism and his life of uh, pursuing pleasure and ambition didn't get him anywhere. And then through the prayers of his mother, he returned to his Christian faith. And so, um, the Confessions is not only a confession of sin, it's a confession of newfound faith, and it's a confession to the glory of God. Uh, when one reads this book, they benefit from Augustine's great wisdom as a Christian philosopher and theologian. But personally, we feel we're reading the words of an empathetic Christian friend and counselor. I like the book so much because it's kind of like reading the Psalms. You're Augustine's talking to God. The whole book is a, his discussion with God. And uh, you see, the last time I read, I reread the Confessions, 
uh, I counted the number of times he quoted or referenced or alluded to scripture, and I counted exactly 600 references. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's a remarkable book. Um, I think, I think actually, uh, Augustine had something behind, uh, it's not just his story. I think he was really writing about all of our story our journey, our looking for God. And uh, again, there are some good translations out there. Um, Pine Coffin has a, a, an edition uh, in the, um, oh, uh, um, it just slipped my mind, um, but there are, there are four that I recommend. And uh, you can go on website and look at some of my articles on Augustine, and I, I recommend some of the writings. Uh, Sheed has a translation. Then there's a fairly new translation by a, uh, a woman scholar who is Roman Catholic, and it has gotten a lot of raves. So some some good translations out there. I uh, By the way, I the last reading, I bought it uh, as an audible book. And I went through it, uh, listening to the to the uh, narrator, and I just went through my my copy line by line. And I what I really liked about it is I thought this narrator was very skilled. I thought he, you know, when he read, he really got into it, and I felt it was read the way Augustine actually intended that it be written. So it was. It was a lot of fun, and I'm having some eye problems, and so um, I'm trying to do more of listening and um, you know, kind of kind of following along. So, Ken, Ken I have a, a comment on this book. Uh, this is one that I have read on your list. <laughs> um, your last point there. Personally, we feel we're reading the words of an empathetic Christian friend and counselor. I really appreciate that because that's what I got, uh, the feeling I got when reading the book. That is, when you find a book like this, you could be thinking, oh, this is just so narcissistic. Narcissistic. The person is just talking about themselves the whole time. It's making me sick, but you don't get that at all. You really do feel like you're talking about somebody who, who kind of knows your life pretty well, <laughs> even though he lived so long ago. So I appreciate that about what you said. Yeah, you know, in some respects, the beginning of psychology doesn't with Freud. It it starts with Saint Augustine, where he, you know, he looks back at his life. He he begins by talking about, you know, he he was just a, an infant, and uh, he talks about, you know, his learning and things of that nature. And and of course, he has these great stories. You know, he he has his own gar garden. Uh, where he steals the pears with his friends in the neighborhood, and they don't, they don't, they don't steal the pears because they were hungry. They they did it because it was illicit. And by the way, stealing at that time was a really serious offense. But he's back at the garden taking the fruit, you know. And um, I like to say that uh, he. Uh, uh, Bob Dylan, the Rolling Stones, and Sting have songs about St. Augustine. So he's read by popes and Protestant rock star 
are atheists. And that that's the book you want to begin with. There's no doubt about it. All right. I'm going to do one more Augustine book. I, I have a couple more on there, but I'm, I'm just going to do one more Augustine because I have some others that I, I want to talk about. Um, and of course, this is the city of God, De Civitas Dei in Latin. Many scholars view this book as Augustine's magnum opus, his greatest work. Along with being a timeless Christian text, this work is considered a literary classic of Western civilization. The City of God stands as Augustine's monumental world and life view analysis. In this book, Augustine laid new foundations in the field of Christian apologetics and in the analysis of Christian history. This is a work, this is a work to be studied over many years, and we return to it often uh, to this Christian masterpiece. Well, what's what's really interesting about this book is Augustine lives in what we call late antiquity. So Augustine lives when the Roman Empire is coming apart. In fact, when Augustine's dying, uh, the barbarians uh, are right there at the gate of Hippo, and um, they don't destroy his library out of respect for him. But, uh, you know, Augustine was living at a time where he thought, wow, uh, the Roman world is collapsing. Maybe civilization is coming apart. So it's a book about politics. It is, uh, and it's a book that responds to the challenge. Some of the Romans began to say, you know, the Roman Empire was solid until we became Christian. So maybe the maybe the Roman gods are getting their revenge. Maybe they're angry, and so Augustine is responding to the apologetic challenge that. Christianity has somehow damaged uh, the Roman Empire. Augustine argues, no, the Roman Empire isn't becoming falling apart because of its newfound faith. It's coming apart because it was built on oppression. It was built on on greed. It was built on uh, a sense that the Romans were superior to all others. Augustine's, of course, an interesting person. Most scholars think he's Berber. Uh, so he comes out of North Africa. Uh, the Berber would be Caucasian Arab. So undoubtedly, uh, if you saw Augustine, he would probably have uh, a dark complexion, uh, not African per se, but but Arab. Um, great book. Great book. Very, very, very challenging. Um, thousand pages, but hey, make a Make a man out of you, Dave, right? My, uh, I, I think I've mentioned before, my son listened to the audio version of City of God while he was driving. And I think he said it was 48 hours. <laughs> there you go. Um, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with uh, maybe, well, uh, I wrote classic Christian thinkers for the very purpose of introducing you to Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, Anselm Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, Pascal, and Lewis as a way of kind of helping you. Okay, maybe now I'll start, I'll pick up the confessions or I'll, I'll read the Ponce's or, you know what? Uh, maybe I'll read Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And so I, I try to help uh, in that in that manner. Okay. How about, uh, how about a couple more, uh, Joe, I know we're trying to keep our, our program at a reasonable length, but let me read just, um, uh, 
a couple more. Here's by St. Anselm. So now we're talking about uh, the Middle Ages. Uh, the book is entitled Cur Deus Homo, Latin for Why the God-Man, or Why Has God Become Man? So again, you see that medieval idea of what's the purpose of the incarnation, right? Um, this book, Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man, explains and defends why Jesus Christ, the Savior, must be both God and man, again, a single person with both the divine and human nature, in order to reconcile a holy God with sinful humanity. This book presents a provocative way of understanding Christ's atonement. We think Anselm provides a powerful answer as to why sinning against God is an eternal sin with eternal repercussions. Uh, Anselm's book stretches our, our thinking. Um, I think that I think Anselm is, is a very important Christian thinker, and of course he is often known as the uh, the one who develops the ontological argument. Uh, but he was very much an Augustinian, and uh, uh, he has a couple books where he talks about faith and reason that are are really really good books. Okay, uh, Joe, how are we doing on time? Do, do I have time for? Yeah, you can hit another one or two. Okay, very good. Well, um, let me let me give you some Protestants. We've been talking about some Catholics there and uh, and Orthodox with Athanasius. Here is the most controversial man in church history, John Calvin. Uh, his book, The Institutes for the Christian Religion. Um, I think that. Uh, I think that Calvin's commentaries are some of the best, even though they're written 500 years ago. Um, Calvin is a very biblically oriented theologian. Uh, John Calvin is one of the most influential persons in, in the history of Christendom. His book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, is a great theological classic. The work represents a full systematic theology of the Reformed tradition, within historic Protestantism, intended as a basic introduction or catechism to the Christ, to Christian theology. The starting point of the Institutes of the Christian Religion is the Apostles' Creed. Calvin surveys the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in creation, revelation, and redemption. Calvin's book always challenges us to think biblically. Um, you know, I, I write about two of the Protestant reformers in my book, Classic Christian Thinkers. Of course, Luther, who was the father of the Protestant Reformation, about Calvin. I think Calvin is the systematic theologian of the Protestant Reformation. And um, I think, unfortunately, he um, gets a bad rap at times. There is, uh, uh, you know, the Michael Servetus, John Calvin issue. Uh, Servetus was a heretic who made the mistake of going into Christian Geneva and and uh, challenging the Trinity, and uh, he was arrested and put to death. Uh, sometimes I think Calvin gets blamed for that. And then, of course, we have a constant kind of clash between Calvinism and Arminianism. Um, I think the thing that you don't want to miss about Calvin is how biblically oriented he is. Uh, 
Calvin makes a biblical case. Uh, he's not all that interested in philosophy. He's interested in what God's word have to say. And whether you agree with him or not, uh, you, you don't want to miss him. I'm going to give you one more, and it's a little bit of a different one. This is the Book of Common Prayer, which was compiled by the English reformer Thomas Cranmer. Uh, the Anglican Church's The Book of Common Prayer is an excellent resource on all aspects of prayer. It contains a collection of the great formal prayers, as well as Christian liturgies and the creeds of the church. It has daily prayers and prayers for all holy days within the Christian calendar. We often find that utilizing the liturgy helps us realize how big God is. We often read it because we want the best Christian theology and thought on prayer to shape our minds. I think it's an absolute uh, masterpiece. Um, uh, J.I. Packer, who was a, a, a great contemporary theologian, uh, Puritan, um, Packer said that the Book of Common Prayer is the Bible arranged for worship. And uh, I have found it to be just an amazing volume. So these are some of the books that are there. I, I, I didn't get a chance to read uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae. Uh, we could have talked about Pascal's Pensees, Jonathan Edwards' A Treatise Concerned Religious Affections. Of course, we didn't touch on some of the contemporary works, Mere Christianity, by Lewis, Basic Christianity by Stott, and then Essential Christianity by my mentor and teacher, Walter Martin. So there's some really good books out there that you could consider some careful analytical reading. Hmm. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Kent. Uh, you've got my reading list uh, going here, and I hope our listeners agree. If you haven't read some of these, uh, it's time to do so. So this has been uh, a learning experience just hearing these three podcasts and inspirational uh, as well. Dave, I don't know if you have any comments on it. I uh, I just ordered Republic. Oh, I will why on Kindle. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll give it a try, Ken. <laughs> you know, I, I I remember the first time I met Dave here at at Reasons to Believe. He had he had come over and. He asked me, well, what's your background? And I said, philosophy. And Dave said, philosophy. And he had this bad look on his face. <laughs> but I, I have to say, I, I think I've I've converted him or maybe corrupted him. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all great stuff. Uh, thank you for your comments on, on these books. Uh, all right. And thank you, listeners, for listening to the podcast. And we welcome your comments and questions. You can reach out to Ken via Twitter at RTB underscore K samples. We'll be glad to read your comment here. Uh, you can get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. That will wrap it up for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.